0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by the Amarillo College 2022 Creative Mind Lecture, which features Texas author Skip Hollinsworth this Thursday, May 5th, at the Globe News Center for the Performing Arts. The lecture is sponsored by the Amarillo College Foundation, and the event is free and begins at 7.30 p.m. Now, you might know Skip Hollinsworth from his role as the executive editor of Texas Monthly or from the true crime podcast, Tom Brown's Body, which is about the mystery of Thomas Brown's disappearance and death in Canadian Texas. A really great podcast, by the way. Hollinsworth will be speaking here in Amarillo, though, about his historic thriller, The Midnight Assassin which tells the story of the first known American serial killer and the panic that killer brought to Austin, Texas in 1885. I am super excited about this event. I'm going to be there. I hope to see you there too. Skip Hollinsworth at the AC Creative Mind lecture this Thursday, May 5th, this week at the Globe News Center. And this being the first podcast episode of May, I want to make sure you know that the new May and June edition of Brick and Elm magazine is out on newsstands this week. It's being delivered to the homes of subscribers right now. You can read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Casey Stoughton. She's the city of Amarillo's Director of Public Health. And if you've lived in Amarillo at any point over the past two years, that name is familiar to you. Casey has been a huge part of the city's public response to the pandemic, a role she was not always comfortable with, but which she and her team have been preparing for in obvious and not-so-obvious ways for years. Ever since those early days of the pandemic, and then again upon the, the city's vaccine rollout, I knew I wanted to talk to Casey. I wanted to sit down with her, hopefully after the dust cleared, for a podcast debrief, of a truly unforgettable period in Amarillo. And so this is that conversation. And I'm really thankful we've reached a point where we can have it. Here's Casey Stoughton. Casey Stoughton, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited.
0: Well, absolutely. I'm excited to have you here. I was I was telling you before we started that I've been thinking like almost monthly over the past couple of years, I need to have Casey Stoughton on the podcast. And I I didn't want to bother you. You seemed busy. You seemed to have some things happening. So I've waited till we're sort of in a, a maybe safe time to do that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can tell me whether that's accurate or not. But before we talk about any of that stuff, I, I, I want to start with you like I do with all my guests and just ask how you ended up here in this area.
1: Sure. So I was born and raised here. So um, it is nice to be home. And that's kind of what Amarillo feels like is home. So I... Again, born and raised here. All my family's here. So it's always been good to be able to take care of the people who took care of me growing up. So that's.
0: Where did you go to high school?
1: So I went to Randall High School.
0: And did you stay around here for college or anything like that? Or did you go away?
1: Well, I went to WT for nursing school. Um, I kind of had an interesting college career, but um, I crammed four years into six And so, um, I went to, um, WT's nursing school. I had lots of majors, tried out everything from like criminal justice to education to, oh goodness, I don't even know all the majors, but finally, um, settled on one. I moved to Honduras for a little while, just a short time period and taught fourth and fifth grade there in Honduras, um, to some boys. And I learned there that I was not a teacher, so it's good to know what you're not. Yeah,
0: was that was that like within the college experience when you moved there to teach, or was that after you had graduated?
1: So it was within the college. It okay. was while I was cramming that four years okay. into six.
0: So were, were you studying like education, or like uh-huh. were you pursuing that as a degree, and then you went and taught? And I then was you yeah. realized maybe that's a, a bad path. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I worked for a mission organization and um, lived with a family and taught their boys and learned pretty quickly. I think we all learned pretty quickly that that was not my calling. Mm-hmm. But what was my calling was the mission organization that I worked for um, had a hospital. So we lived in San Pedro Sula and then about 30 minutes outside of San Pedro was a town called just Sula. Mm-hmm. And so in Sula was a hospital. So we had a Votech um, school and then a hospital. And so I would, anytime I could get away, I would go to the hospital and work with the surgeons that came in from the States. Um, there was a local physician there. He was in ob So I would, they would let me scrub into surgery.
0: Just as like a just
1: volunteer? Just as a person. Uh-huh. And, you know, they let me like participate in total hip replacements and um stitch people up after surgery and work in the recovery room. And and you hadn't
0: taken any nursing classes no? before that. This Mm-mm. was
1: I was an education major. Huh. And so I called my mom and told her that I had changed my major yet again to nursing and she is a nurse. So she was thrilled. And so I took the like um intro to nursing mm-hmm. there in Honduras.
0: Why do you think the medical field was something that either you were well suited for or that was attractive to you can you identify that
1: so i love i know it's it's going to sound cliche but i do love taking care of people Mm -hmm. i've had great great nurses in my life like my mom was a nurse her best friend was a nurse so have had great examples of very strong women who were nurses and so it was probably destiny. I mm-hmm. probably didn't need to have all the other majors and all the other, but they were good experiences and learned a lot. So it was probably destiny anyway. How, how long were you in Honduras? About nine months.
0: Okay. Was that the first time you'd really traveled or lived outside the United States?
1: Um, lived, yes, but not. Tra- we'd, okay, we'd you traveled. traveled. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I'm always interested in talking to people who have lived somewhere else like that, what kinds of things that helps you maybe realize or understand better Mm -hmm. about the place you're from? You know, that sometimes it takes leaving Amarillo to really appreciate Amarillo, leaving Texas or the United States to appreciate the United States. Was that true with you? I mean, did you, did you find that you grew in some important ways just personally?
1: Absolutely. I think there's a level of, you know, independence that you have to have, especially when you live almost alone Mm -hmm. overseas, There's also a lot of things that you kind of just get over whenever you live in other places. You know, there's some comforts that you can really do without. Um, There's some things that like fears that you overcome. Mm -hmm. And so those were really great things to to have experienced. Especially as
0: a college student, I would think that it's a pretty formative period. Yeah. So you came back. And went straight into nursing school. Is that right?
1: Yes. So I went straight into nursing school. I'd taken the, like you take like an introduction to nursing school. So I took that class in Honduras. So the time that I was there, I was also taking classes. And so I took that introduction to nursing school and then uh, went ahead and and started school. Okay. So
0: after you graduated then, did you go into nursing like as was it a direct path into like a, a bedside nursing kind of situation
1: so I knew so public health was a great a great extension of kind of the work there in Honduras um so I loved that that work and that I don't know that kind of field mm-hmm. I didn't I knew that I couldn't live overseas again and so I knew but I wanted to do that so public health was, was kind of that path for me. And so I went straight from nursing school. When I was at WT, we did like an internship. And so I worked in the NICU for just a little bit. And during that internship, and then I went straight to public health. So I've been at public health for almost 19 years. Okay. And
0: and public health, like as a career, um, it doesn't necessarily require nursing certification or medical degree or anything like that, right? I mean, you could just do that as a a layperson who's interested in public health.
1: Right. Right. So, but I chose public health nursing as a career. Okay. Even during nursing school, worked at the public health department as an intern. So have just grown up as a nurse at public health. Okay.
0: So uh, I, I've talked to a, a former guest on this podcast, Lacey Scott, who uh, has a public health degree and has worked with like you know, refugee health and mm-hmm. a lot of different... Uh, variations of that and has a really different background. And I I wonder if going into public health and having been in a place like Honduras, if you knew what that wanted to look like, if you had an idea uh, of a, a certain type of public health, or if you were just open to the whole generalized career.
1: So I was open to the whole career. Like, I think it's, I think it's important. You know, some of the lessons learned in Honduras, are very translatable to even to home. There are, you know, we have lots and lots of neighbors that don't have access to health care, that don't have insurance, that don't have, that there, there are so many needs, very mm-hmm. basic needs that need to be met. And so, and public health is really a, a great safety net. And so I think that that is. That was really one of the driving forces for me. So I started in immunizations, okay. and so that's a really great safety net program that meets many of those needs. And so it's really great to just be in the community, working with families, providing some of those resources.
0: Did you work directly for the city of Amarillo after you graduated? Like, was, was that your first public health job? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and all of those things have really led up to today, mm-hmm. you know, then some of the experiences that we've all had collectively through COVID.
0: So that's that's something that I um, I mean, obviously, we need to talk about because, you know, you went however 17 years in public health and nobody in Amarillo probably knew your name or, or saw you or unless I got an immunization or something right. from you. And then all of a sudden, the last two years, you're a very public face of the city's COVID response. And I wonder, like, that part of it, with your profile being raised, what that has been like for you. Because not not everybody wants to be known, you know, or, or wants to be... Um, talked about on social media or on the TV or, you know, in in Zoom calls that everybody's watching. Not Mm -hmm. not every personality enjoys that. I wonder Mm -hmm. if if that's true for you or or where you are.
1: So, you know, we're generally and have always been kind of a private um, person. You know, our families, Mm -hmm. like just like everybody else's family, like I've been getting texts from our little ones t-ball team. And, you know, so we do all the things that everyone else does. So it has been really different for our family for that change to have happened to, you know, mommy's now all of a sudden on the news. And, you know, so my little ones are now asking, you know, why are you on TV? Mm -hmm. And why do people talk to you in the grocery store? And some of those things. So it has been fun. It's been challenging. We've had lots of neat conversations around the dinner table, um, I don't think I would have, I would trade it. I'm not sure two years ago I would have asked for it, but it's been good.
0: That you didn't have like any media training classes or anything when you were at WT? I mean, was was that discussed as part of public health?
1: No, not in nursing. I mean, but also in nursing, you are prepared to like take what comes next. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's really helpful.
0: Just kind of looking back, and I I want to say that we're on the other side of COVID, although who knows? but, like, what, what have the past couple of years just been like for you personally? Can you, you, know, can you describe that?
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've talked about it before, but I think it's, you know, as a mom and as a wife and as a, you know, a person. Like, we have, you know, we have two kids, and our littlest one was potty trained. Like, my husband potty trained her while I was gone. Oh, Yeah. So I was responding to COVID and doing all of the all of the things with the team and with the our, you know, city team and our public health team. And I got home and, you know, I was like, you know, trying to find the pull ups and things. And yeah. he said she's been potty trained for a couple of weeks. Like, we don't need those. And so it was so those kind of things, like I missed some of those milestones. Mm-hmm. But I also know that like He's got it. Yeah. So he's a great dad and a great husband, and and he just takes care of it. And so I didn't have to worry about it. Now, as a mom, I missed it. But it's okay. Like, the kids also see that, that work. Our little one asks pretty regularly, um, did you take care of people today, Mom?
0: You said yes. Yes. 200,000
1: people. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: Professionally, I'd I'd like to hear um, just what, well, let's go back a couple of years, you know, February of 2020. You're in a position where, you know, you've been in public health. That has been your focus before anybody really had heard of public health or or thought about it. When did you and your team start thinking, okay, we need to to start to prepare for what we're hearing, you know, Mm -hmm. in China, what's happening in Washington state?
1: So you know we had several meetings about it internally, and I remember even one particular meeting we we talked in um, Dr. Bell, who's our health authority. He was our deputy health authority at the time. Mm-hmm. He'd he'd drawn on the whiteboard, and he even drew a little stick figure that was you know like we talked about, like this will go off the cliff if we start to see really sustained tertiary transmission. And so we voted on whether or not we thought that would happen as a as a as a, de- team, as a, team. a department yeah as a team and i remember voting no that i didn't think it would happen and mostly i voted that way because i didn't want it to happen right
0: were there other people who who voted no that, yeah. that kind of felt the same way like oh, yeah. that that fear kind of
1: it was about 50-50 okay. i mean i think we and we probably all knew that it was like it was a it was a big deal. It was coming. We, you know, and in that we were preparing for it, but we also kind of had this, you know, internal vote.
0: And that was like in February before it was, yeah. things really started. So, so once th- there were several, I, I'm thinking back, you know, some of the triggers where people started taking it seriously, like Tom Hanks got COVID mm-hmm. and then the NBA Shut down, and then March Madness was canceled. Like like those dominoes, big dominoes, kind of started to fall, and all of a sudden people were were like, "Oh, this is a thing," and we were just waiting for it to get to Amarillo. Right? What was it like where you were?
1: So, it was it was you know very similar. We were watching all of these same things happen, and we were you know typically things will start on the coasts and you know move their way in, and that was again kind of the same pattern that took place, and so we needed to make sure that we had everything in order for us to, you know, when we had our first case, we were ready to respond. Mm -hmm. And so in in public health, you know, part of that is we would do a patient interview and then we would do everybody's familiar with the term contact tracing now and contact investigation. And that is very, very typical of what we would do for um, any, any kind of condition or disease that's reported to public health. And so we gathered our team up and said, okay, you know, we talked about Lacey. Lacey is our expert in um, many things, including tuberculosis. And so she is real, her her and her team are really good at doing um, contact investigations and contact tracing. So she and her team were tasked with kind of developing that piece of it and that form. And then our Andrea Kubicek and our um, HIV STD team are really good at doing um, patient interviews. And so they really took that piece and developed the patient interview forms. Because, And then, you know, Lori and Lori Burton and her team are really, they do all of our communicable disease reporting. And so they developed the pieces that we were going to use to to do all of our like data entry and mm-hmm. how we were going to capture this data because we knew we were going to have you know information coming in and we needed a way to be able to sort that and so we we took all of our experts and just took the elephant kind of one bite at a time yeah. and peeled, peeled it back so that we could take it step by step and know like when we get our first case this is exactly what we're going to do next and kind of each step out that way, because when you break it down, even though COVID is new, the process of public health isn't right, new. Right. And so we wanted to have those pieces together, but we knew that we knew what we were doing with the, within the process and the framework of public health.
0: And you had that framework sort of built before the cases arrived here. Mm-hmm. How, like, how early were you starting to have those discussions?
1: Well, we started in February, early March, you know, really kind of getting those pieces together. And then, you know, the day we had our first case, it was like, okay, go, go, go. You know, so I remember that
0: first press conference. Yes. And everybody was just like, well, here we are. We all expected it. We didn't know when it would happen. And then it was there. Was it an all hands on deck sort of situation Starting then?
1: Starting then and really moving until around September of 21. Okay. Um, you know, we, and there were, you know, different phases. So we had really kind of that initial phase um, where we were building and and there were changes. I mean, even sometimes by the hour changes. And we, we built m- many of those processes you know, we had, we had to go that first day. And so some of those, those processes were developed in house. And then we would start receiving changes from the state and from CDC, Mm -hmm. you know, great partners. And so we started to receive, so we were updating forms and changing things, you know, sometimes, you know, multiple times a day. So lots of internal communication, the team at public health is just truly amazing.
0: How many employees are in Public health.
1: So we have 40 full-time okay. employees, and then we surged up to over 100 with, um, with temporary staff as well.
0: And I know you were relying on the state, you were relying on the CDC. Was there a, you know, maybe a best practices sharing with other municipalities, with other cities, uh, saying this is what we're doing in Amarillo or... What Nashville is doing? I mean, did you do that sort of thing?
1: Absolutely. So we relied really heavily on, um, it's called Tacho so the Texas Association of City and County Health Officials. Okay. Um, I happen to be the president of that organization. It's always a great time to be a president of the organization during a pandemic. I going to say, yeah. um, That's
0: good timing or maybe terrible timing. Right? I don't know. Right.
1: <laughs> So um, so that um, organization is really a tight-knit organization of local health department directors across the state. And so there were uh, there was lots of communication and um, information sharing, sharing of forms, those kind of things among um, health departments across Texas.
0: There's a part of a crisis moment where people who are highly trained and that's their career, like they go into action mode and they know what to do and they they're they're doing what they're built to do and part of that there's a real adrenaline to that at the same time you can't live on adrenaline forever and eventually you know there's there's a burnout associated i I wonder if you could tell me like what those first few weeks were like was were you on that adrenaline part and then when did the burnout start to happen
1: One of our programs and Mark Price and his team, Mark is our program manager for um, public health emergency preparedness. So he, we have plans developed for all hazards. One of the things that's really interesting about COVID is it doesn't fit our plans. Mm -hmm. Our, all of our plans are designed for something that there's a shot or there's a antibiotic or there's, you know, there's an action step for with COVID there, with it being a new virus, there wasn't an antibiotic for it. There wasn't, a, especially early on. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't a vaccine developed um, until later.
0: Treatment was still being figured out, right during that phase,
1: right. So it was truly supportive care for quite a while. So it was very much, you know, responding and supportive care making sure pe- people had access to testing those those types of activities so it was very much an adrenaline feeling but it went on for so long like it you know and when you think of disaster or emergency you think of a really intense situation for a very short period of time right but this just I mean, it's basically it's still like we're still doing COVID work at the health department. So it's still happening. And so our team, you know, we, our first case mid-March, we didn't have a day off until mid-July. Wow! And so the team really, um, there are lots of, you know, very tightly knit bonds, um, lots of hard work, a lot of takeout.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me... Tell me about that that aspect of it, the 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 personal health, the mental health aspect. like that's one of the things I kept thinking of. um, I'm friends with lacey and and I knew how hard your team was working and how long those hours were, and that you were working in just this world of uncertainty mm-hmm. because you knew how to do public health, but you didn't know the virus. People were still figuring out how it's transmitted, all those sorts of things like, how did how did you and your team like just manage that as humans you know in in such a crisis situation
1: yeah it was really hard i mean there were times like, we had to just like continue to check on each other um and it was you know i think one of the 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 pieces that was helpful is we had information and there was a lot of fear um in the community there were a lot of questions mm-hmm. our team was being called on to do you know just an absolutely heroic effort and so and they did and so we just you know we talked about every day during um, the morning meetings um there was there were opportunities to to share and to talk to one another to talk to peers about about those feelings we worked with the fire department they have a crisis intervention team Mm -hmm. so we worked with them and they you know provided um, that crisis response um couple of days a week for, for the us, crisis responders. For the crisis <laughs> responders. Um, and so we had, um, we had that available and they just, it was, they j- really, it's amazing how the city, the whole city team pulled together to support public health and to just, you know, be part of that greater team.
0: I'd like to hear about the, uh, the city's rollout of the vaccinations once that became possible, because that was, a really significant story a national story mm-hmm. um, we were so good at it there at the beginning um, and I still have heard just anecdotal you know you'll run into somebody and in, on a ski lift in New Mexico and tell them you're from Amarillo they're like oh yeah I went and got my vaccine in Amarillo because they were available there before they were available in Santa Fe or, or wherever um, and so I'd like to hear about that as you started to hear okay the vaccines are gonna be ready like what, what did your team do? Mm-hmm. How did you prepare for that?
1: That has been my favorite part of the whole thing. That's I the biggest win, right? It's the biggest win. It was um, the moment that I think our team kind of took a deep breath and like there was lots of hope. It was that was like the best. So we practice every year um, that that scenario. Um, we give our HR department, purchases flu vaccine for the city employees, mm-hmm. and we practice that exact setup every year just for this type of event. Okay. And so we were, like, ready to go with that.
0: So you already had, like, some of the systems oh, and yeah. the processes in place. The whole thing. You didn't was have ready. to reinvent anything.
1: Nope. And so when we were ready, we called the Civic Center and said, okay, like, let's set up the clinic, like, the vaccination clinic. And, you know, everybody, I think we can, like, we can really do a lot to get in our own way when we try to make things more complicated than they need to be. And so we didn't want to do that. And so there were, you know, there was all sorts of talk about online registration systems and, you know, registering in all of these complicated ways. And we, you know, talked to, I talked to the mayor and to the city manager and we talked about, know we can have a very robust like complicated online registration process in like two months or we can have people fill out paper tomorrow Mm -hmm. so we can go fast or we can go with technology and they were like go fast
0: and that almost sounds counterintuitive Uh uh-huh yeah but it's because you had we everything in place yeah, yeah.
1: and so I, we were like great let's go fast and let's take care of people and so and what that meant for us is that we were going to have to do all of the data entry on the backside. okay but we also knew that we were going to our first priority was people over 65 and people with chronic health care conditions and we know that sometimes technology can be a burden right but everybody can fill out their address on a piece of paper so We even had, like, we were ready even with the intake forms. I mean, we had the packets ready to go. We were ready. And so our print shop, oh, my goodness, God bless Terry, she printed out, like, thousands of packets that night. And the Civic Center set up... Like the Civic Center team, Sherman and Bo and their teams, they set up the Civic Center and we were ready to go that day. Hmm. And we got word from the state that there were not residency restrictions. Like it's, it was everyone's right. vaccine, not Amarillo's vaccine or Texas's vaccine. And so that really made it easier for us because we didn't have to check residency or turn people away. We could just process through the line and, and move very quickly.
0: And I, I've heard a lot of anecdotal stories of people from other states coming here, either, even other countries. I, I wonder if you heard the same. Like, did you meet people? Was, was mm-hmm. that a part of the discussions that you had? Hey, today somebody was here from this place.
1: Absolutely. We had somebody from every state except West Virginia. Really? Yeah. So we needed we need one person from West Virginia, and then we can like color in our entire mm-hmm. map of the U.S.
0: Oh, well, let's put that out there. Maybe we can get somebody to travel yeah, here who hasn't absolutely. gotten a booster or something. The thing that I think was so impressive uh, about ours was just how fast you were able to roll it out and get it in motion. I, I wonder, like, why was it different here than in other places? Was it because you didn't try to do any fancy technology? Was it because you'd been practicing with, you know, the, the flu clinic? I mean, what what was it about Amarillo that worked so well?
1: I think it's probably all of it. I think that, like you said, we didn't we, we just went kind of old school with paper mm-hmm. and that was quick. We had practiced it. So we were, everybody was ready to go from the civic center team to the public health team, to the print shop, to everybody. But I also think that our relationships and the size of Amarillo is really important. Okay. So we're big enough that we have all the resources that we need, but we're not so big that it overwhelms the system. Okay. So I think that that's really like, we're a great size. I also think that the relationships that we have are really key. So we're, again, I think that size is important because like we can pick up the phone and call a partner and I know the answer is going to be yes. And they can do it today. There were many times when like we would be so close to running out of vaccine and I didn't know where it was going to come from. And I would pick up the phone and call one of the hospitals and we would have vaccine like within the hour. And that relationship went both ways. So they would call us and need something and we would get it over to them. So I think it's really, I mean, that's one of my favorite things about Mm -hmm. Amarillo is just our relationships and, you know, every, like the expectation is that our partners are going to say yes. Right. There was
0: no competition involved or nobody trying to outdo anybody. It it was a cohesive team, I guess. Right.
1: There's, there was there was no territorialism. Mm-hmm. It was the number one goal was to save lives.
0: Was that in your mind, was that the biggest win of the pandemic response? was that vaccine rollout and how well that went?
1: I think so. you know, I remember on the first day there the the, that, the civic center was so full of hope that day. There were people who were so excited to be out and in public. And they were hugging and they were talking about how they were so excited to get the vaccine because they were going to see, they were going to go to their grand, their granddaughter's yeah, birthday yeah. party, or they were going to go to, you know, Thanksgiving, or they were going to, you know, do, you know, well, I guess it was in January. So yeah, I was going to say it was Thanksgiving, but
0: cold that day though. And it was cold. People were lined up outside. They and- were.
1: They were. So it was really amazing. And I think the other thing that's important is, you know, it, it morphed over time. Like, and sometimes again, just like, just like the response, um, at the health department, sometimes by the hour, mm-hmm. you know, we would have so many people that we didn't want people outside. So the civic center would bring out more stanchions and we would, you know, increase the line. And at one time we had over seven and a half football fields worth of line.
0: Wow. That's, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I asked you about the biggest win. What, what was the biggest frustration? For the past couple of years, personally, um, professionally, I mean, however you want to answer that.
1: Sure, I think um, just the misinformation about you know specifically like vaccines and treatment mm-hmm. and the distrust is always disheartening.
0: That is something that I think public health, like like that's not new. I would say in the public health world. Did you feel surprised by the amount of mistrust that sort of developed? Because it wasn't there at the beginning. Um, it, it kind of organically built up into what it has become now. I do you have, like, any framework for thinking about that or dealing with that?
1: At times, I was surprised at kind of how big it got and kind of the things that that would, like, come to the surface as the problem mm-hmm. or, like, what what folks would latch on to or... Um, I was just kind of surprised at what what, what that was. And like, it
0: fluctuated. Like it, it wasn't it did. the same all the way through. It did. Like different treatments would be elevated and people would say this is the only way to treat it. Different conspiracy theories popped up. But those changed. You know, those evolved during the course of it, which uh, maybe that tells us yeah. something.
1: And I know that it's hard, and I know that there's so much noise right now, and it's hard. There is never a time when one diagnosis should take up a significant percentage of hospital beds. Mm -hmm. And so it was very sad um, to see, you know, just the loss of life and the heartache that that families and, and individuals were going through. So
0: especially i would think as someone who works in public health where that like that literally is your job is to to help minimize that um that, that that that's why i kept thinking about you know what's what's the uh the mental health like of of the you know of the team because you're having to work so hard because you know you're you're feeling the weight of all that trauma that the city was going mm-hmm.
1: through you know there was there were times you know, early on, we would monitor patients, and so we would call them every day. Mm-hmm. Um, that that changed kind of along the way, but early on, we would call patients every day. And I remember one nurse who called a patient, and they had just lost their spouse. And our nurse was the very first person to have called them, to to have talked to them right, right after they uh, received the news that their spouse had died. and. So just, you know, that that nurse talking through that heartache and that fear with that patient. And that happened multiple times. And just, you know, the comfort that our nurses brought and our staff brought to patients. But it did. It was very hard for staff.
0: I like to look forward a little bit because I and you mentioned this about how the team grew closer because you were going through a crisis together and that's something that does happen you know crisis moments are often like a a linchpin for some sort of renewal for some sort of growth whether you're an individual or like an organization and I wonder if you can look at the past couple of years and say okay what has happened to our public health team and how are we going to build on this in the future? Like, how are you going to be better um, when the next crisis hits?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're definitely, I think we have kind of that f- framework and that experience of like things don't always look the same. Mm-hmm. And I mean, flexibility is, I don't know of a group that's more flexible. And so that I think is really helpful um, for us as individuals and as a department. And so as we're kind of moving and changing to have those really kind of rock solid relationships and respect and care for one another, along with the flexibility to move and change and look forward to something new, I think is um, really exciting We are moving into a new building soon, so Mm -hmm. we have purchased the property next door to us, and so there's lots of opportunity for growth, and so I think that everybody's really looking forward to that.
0: One of the things that has occurred to me just during the course of this conversation is that you figured out really early that education was not the path for you, so you went into public health. And then over the past two years, you've been an educator about health for the entire city, I wonder if that feels like a surprise to you that that, that's the position you ended up in as the face of explaining this virus and what happens and what we know and how you deal with it. Mm -hmm. Does it feel like a surprise to you or does it feel like this is just what I do?
1: I just love people and I really love talking to people. Um, So I think it really is probably a, a natural fit I also married a teacher, so I. while I didn't want to be like a classroom teacher. Mm-hmm. I do really love teachers. You Why can be in an particular?
0: educator. I can be an educator being
1: a without being a teacher. That's right.
0: This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by the Texas Outdoor Musical, which is back this summer in Paladuro Canyon State Park. Tickets for this family-friendly musical are selling fast. They're already available and it runs through mid August so don't miss out on this experience reserve your tickets now at texasshow.com that's texas-show.com Hamrello hey is also supported this week by Wick Realty Episodes of this podcast to be very perfectly honest have been recorded in 3 different homes I've lived in and Wick helped me buy and sell all of them In a city filled with realtors and real estate companies they truly are one of the best What I really love is that Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying or selling a home, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of their outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, I'm back with Casey Stoughton of Amarillo Public Health. Uh, Casey, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes the Panhandle Petroleum Story, which is a permanent exhibit about how oil exploration changed this area. And one of the things I really love about this exhibit, and I didn't realize this until I actually went through it, but it has a, a portion of it that talks about how plastic is made from petroleum byproducts, including natural gas which is why we have stuff like medicine bottles and coffee makers and all those things that we didn't have before the discovery of oil. So that's one of the uh, the things that I learned at the museum. Cool.
1: Well, check it out. Um,
0: yeah. Vitamin bottles, all kinds of public health things. Cool. Um, you can learn more at uh, panhandleplains.org. Okay. Uh, we've been talking about this the whole episode, but I do always ask my guest to start this. What's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people?
1: How very helpful they are. Okay. So we had, um, during the vaccination clinic, we had one sweet lady who she couldn't, she said she couldn't see, um, like the the screener raised their hand. And so instead of getting frustrated mm-hmm. or, you know, telling our team that she was upset at that, she went home and she made these bright green signs for us. And she brought them back to the clinic and so our screeners then would hold up their sign with their number so that from the very back they could send someone forward to table number five Okay, table number one. So I learned how very helpful people are and how super invested our community is in making things better.
0: Instead of just complaining about something, she solved the problem She solved you. the problem. All right. Yeah. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of?
1: Well, I polled my family, and we decided that we have too many gophers, goat heads, and grass fires.
0: Okay. Those are—well, um, the, the goat heads and grass fires, I've heard before. The gophers, I have not. Mm-hmm. Um, is, do you live in a part of the city where it's it's causing yard problems?
1: So my parents do. They live okay. out in the country, and there are a number of gophers that have made their home in their yard.
0: Actual, like— Gophers as compared to prairie dogs or, or something like that. Are they well, I don't kinda... think
1: that they are sod poodles yeah. um or prairie dogs. My dad calls them gophers. Right. So well, but I, it, it fit with the G's.
0: Yeah, and and that's a good that's a good way to think about it. The yeah. alliteration is important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What does this area not have enough of?
1: Definitely water. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard that one.
0: I have heard that one before. Yeah. I don't have a great solution for that no. one though.
1: <laughs> but uh, if we had more water, we might have fewer grass fires. That's
0: true. And joke heads. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area?
1: I think it's like a magnet. Like it just kind of draws you in.
0: Is that a positive or a negative?
1: I think it's a positive.
0: Okay. What's your favorite building in Amarillo?
1: My favorite building is the Santa Fe building. Okay. My granddad was the Western Line Signal Superintendent for Santa Fe. And so he worked on the eighth floor. And so I remember playing under his desk as a little girl. And when he retired, they gave him his desk. Oh, wow. And so now I have his desk.
0: Is it this giant wooden monstrosity?
1: Yes, it's this giant wooden Santa Fe desk. Oh, that's amazing. It's in my office at home.
0: Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant?
1: Well, there are so very many to choose from, but I have to say that my favorite place to eat is Jeff's Kitchen. Okay. Because I am married to the most amazing cook ever.
0: Well, that's not available to most of us, but... Um, that's your favorite. I'm sure that's good. It is. What's your favorite neighborhood?
1: My favorite neighborhood is Belmar. Okay. Because we have great neighbors. Um, and I love how the neighborhood goes all out for holidays. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, can walk down to Candy Cane Lane and it's just wonderful in the, you know, Christmas time. But there is there is a couple of houses down on Jameson that decorate these huge tall trees all the way to the top. And it's just beautiful.
0: Okay. Belmar is one of those interesting neighborhoods that is old enough to have like some really good trees, mm-hmm. um, some interesting architecture, uh, but it's still not the oldest part of the city. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's one of those kind of like Olson, kind of like... Maybe Puckett, that, that has a real diversity of trees and architecture, mm. all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. When was the last time you visited Paladero Canyon?
1: So we went down to Paladero Canyon last spring. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we every now and then like to stay a night or two. And our little one was three at the time. She was three last summer. And we hiked into some caves and it got super muddy and she hung in there the whole way. So it was, we were real proud of her.
0: Okay. I think everybody has a story like that yes. of uh, getting. Unexpectedly muddy in the canyon. Mm
1: -hmm. She was really excited about the mud.
0: Okay, Casey, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience?
1: So one of my very best friends, she makes this really beautiful jewelry Mm -hmm. out of the um, paint that's at the Cadillac Ranch. Okay. So if you haven't had a chance to check out yellowcitystone.com, then check that out. Um, she's an amazing artist and just does a great job with that. You can also find her artwork at the merch trailer out, out at, at, out Cadillac, at Ranch Cadillac Ranch, Ranch. Okay. and at um, the Six Collective. Okay.
0: All right. Casey Stoughton, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Casey for the interview. I really am grateful for her expertise, her professionalism, and for everything she and her team brought to the city during uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, They just, they did a fantastic job. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors Wick Realty, the Texas Outdoor Musical, and the Amarillo College 2022 Creative Mind Lecture featuring Skip Hollinsworth. Also to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum who sponsors eight straight every week. If you like this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and also leave a review if you want to. I really do appreciate that. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Hey Amarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Barbara and Jim Witten, and Patrick Burns. This has been episode 246. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.